0: Hello, I'm Michael LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Paperless, and this is The Afterword. Today I'm speaking with Yohai Meytal, author of The Badir Brothers, the incredible true story of Moser, Mundir, and Shadi Badir. These three brothers were born to poor Arab parents in a small Israeli village, and they were all born blind. It's the 1980s, and one day, a miraculous piece of technology appears in their village, a payphone at the end of the block. The three brothers discover that they can hear something on the phone that no one else can. Weird beeps and clicks in the background of the calls. They start imitating the sounds and realize that they can manipulate the phone to do their bidding. This discovery is just the beginning of what will become the largest telecom fraud in Israeli history, turning these three blind brothers into unlikely folk heroes. Yohai is a veteran podcaster and journalist. He covers stories ranging from politics to activism to motor racing. He grew up in Haifa, Israel, but now lives in New York with his wife and three kids. I reached him at home. I'm so curious to know, um, right off the bat, just how, how did you end up meeting the Badir brothers? For that story,
1: I actually I need to give a, a shout out to my good friend, Adam Bizansky who is also a filmmaker and a scriptwriter, And he was doing some research for this uh, TV series that he was working on um, and diving into Wikipedia, as he often does. And he stumbled upon this list of uh, hackers, and he was just sort of reading through them. And then one of them was titled The Badir Brothers. He's like, huh, that sounds kind of local. Never heard of that. And then he clicked on it and he, and he started reading it. Actually he started his reading it their Wikipedia page. He was like, wow, this is a crazy story. And then I had just started a podcast with a bunch of friends called Israel story, which is sort of like a, this American lifestyle documentary podcast. Um, so he came to me with the story and I was immediately hooked and he wanted to know if I'd be interested in, you know, finding them and seeing if they're, they would be interested in cooperating with us. Yeah. And as I said, I was instantly hooked and, um, that's, that's kind of how I got onto the story and how it all started. Trying to remember how I actually found their number. I remember it was a bit of a process, but Israel is kind of a small place. So there are different like uh, group when you're a journalist, you can sort of like ask around and get pretty much anybody's number, uh, you know, from the prime minister down. But I remember that it wasn't that simple cause like they, they just wouldn't answer me and I I had to be very persistent. Like I had to really like nudge them for, you know, several months until finally uh, I got on a call with uh, Muzher, the oldest brother. Um, he's sort of like the spokesperson for, for the three of them. And we had a long conversation and, and I, I felt like it went pretty good. And he invited us over, me and Adam, to Qfarkasim in the village. Um, and that's, uh, that's how we set off on our, our journey.
0: Tell me, what, what about their story spoke to you? Like what made you feel that it could be the basis of a, a piece of this kind?
1: I always love a, a good sort of underdog story, and I think in so many ways the Badil brothers are like the ultimate underdogs. Being born Arab in an Israeli society already puts you at a kind of a disadvantage. From a you know poor family in a in a small village, sort of in the in the outskirts, they're blind, of course. They they were born with a, a severe disability, it puts them at a, at a big disadvantage, and so all these sort of things that sort of put them on in a, on a, on the hind legs, you know, from the get go. Um, and still they sort of managed to, to do these unexpected and surprising things. So that's sort of one element, element of it that I think really drew me in from, from the start. Um, but then when you meet them, I just found incredibly sort of curious, uh, interesting and open-minded people. I, I just really connected to them on a human level. Um, they're really like sort of, even though they come from this sort of background, from this, you know, backwash village, if so to speak, they fashion themselves into sort of, you know, men of the world. Um, And I I thought all these like contradictions that they embody were really fascinating. Just as an example, you know, like one of the things that they're always really worried about when we when we talk about the story and and about telling the telling of their story is they don't want their story to be politicized. You know, they have a lot of uh, criticism towards Israel, for example, but they also have a lot of of respect and, and uh, you know, they, they also a lot of things they really like about Israeli society and criticism towards their own society. So they're very like complex. They're very surprising. They're very um, the opposite of what you would imagine in,
0: in so many ways. For the sake of space, you focused on the three blind brothers, um, but there is in fact a, a fourth Badir brother. Can you tell us a little bit about him?
1: It's true. Like, especially in like, you know, in, in more traditional culture, the, the firstborn is supposed to kind of be the leader. But in their case, um, really, I think that the, the brothers more lead the way. And he sort of, uh, he he definitely works with them. He's in the family business. Um, but more of a, a bit more in like a helping side. but He always like, he drives them around. He, he, he does a lot of things in the family business. And in general, I feel like they're a very tight-knit, close family. Um, but everything is sort of revolves around them, but not in what you would expect, like in serving them or helping them get by, but more in like, you know, they're the bosses and everybody is kind of kind of their works for them.
0: Do their crimes still stand as the largest telecom fraud in Israeli history or have they been surpassed?
1: As far as I know, yes, absolutely. Um, and honestly, I don't think it's even possible uh, to to overpass them or to do the kind of things they did today. They were sort of at the end of the uh, at the end of an era in terms of in terms of the technology the phones were using. Phones have digitized since then, and and the the way that they were working the the phone system, it was was an analog system where the code was passed on the line um, using DTMFs. So that system of sort of uh, inputting clicks and sounds and noises into the phone system in order to hack into directories, I think that's um, basically impossible to to do that. Um, And in general, you know, there's so many more safeguards and, and firewalls, et cetera, in place today but I think sort of the error of the lone hacker, or in this case the you know the three lone hackers, is kind of past. Now we see like you know big teams of hackers and government-funded operations and, and more things like
0: that. Something that's really interesting with the story is how it culminates in this trial in September two thousand one, which is obviously a, a date that resonates with people in terms of the kind of paranoia around terrorism and a kind of a running motif in your story is this idea that the authorities are perplexed about whether these brothers are themselves terrorists and that's where a lot of people's mind goes how do how do you think that paranoia um influenced how Israeli society perceived the Badir brothers when they first um were exposed
1: well i mean it's an interesting question and again a bit of a tricky one because the the brothers themselves i know are always they, it's very important for them to stay really far away from like the image of, I don't know, nationalistic actors or you know Palestinian freedom fighters or something like that. But their um, identity definitely played a role, especially in the fact that you know, it took a long time, the, the telecom companies realized something was going on for a long time um and they couldn't get the police they couldn't get any of the authorities to to really do anything to, to take this case on and then finally when they sort of started started um closing in on them and they realized that the people who were perpetrating this they're behind this or at least part of the people who were behind this were arabs suddenly that like ring the alarm bell and people people like rushed to you know deal with this case because that that pushed some kind of a button even though all of their activity had absolutely nothing to do with uh, terror or anything of, of that nature, whatsoever. You know, it's interesting to point out that, like, just a little bit before um, their case, there was uh, another sort of famous uh, hacker called Tenenbaum, the, the Tenenbaum, the analyzer. Um, and I, I mention him because it's it's interesting. He he was a lone hacker, and he managed to hack into NASA, the FBI, uh, you know, the MIT. Um, all kinds of like, you know, very secure, high up uh, places. Um, and he was caught. And he was sort of like from a, a, a he was, a, he was Jewish from a sort of good neighborhood, good background. And he was kind of hailed as a bit of a champion. Even, you know, the the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, back then, he even called him um, in a press conference, he was asked about him, he said something like, damn good, very dangerous too. You know, so it was kind of like a, a Not exactly endorsement, but a bit of a pride in him. And in the end, he got off really easy. I think he got six months community service or or something like that. So definitely, I think the uh, prosecutors and the people that were were involved with, you know, bringing the brothers to trial, I think they definitely tried to play in to the fact that they were Arabs to sort of drum up the charges and and, and, um, get a, you know, heavier sentencing and get a more severe sentencing. But I think it kind of backfired on them partly because of this charm that the the brothers know how to turn on, you know, that that worked on me. So that charm also worked on, uh, it also worked on the judge, I think, who saw them for what they are, which is, you know, very curious kids who uh, did things that are, you know, they shouldn't be doing, that are definitely illegal, but far from being, you know, uh, the terrorist threat that the prosecution was trying to sort of insinuate that they might be.
0: The story concludes with their release from prison, um, can you catch us up a little bit about what they've been doing in the meantime?
1: Yeah, so um, they've they've uh, went on to become quite successful local businessmen. They run a small gas station chain. Uh, they have a they run a cyber security firm. From what I last learned from them, they're actually in the middle of expanding and they're um, building a new small office building in Krakow that will both have their their new offices as well as I believe office space that they're going to run out. So. Uh, you know, you could say that they're getting into real estate. And also, I should mention that uh, um, they got in trouble with the law again a few years ago, this time not related to hacking, related to um, tax fraud and tax evasion. And Musheer, the middle brother, um, actually spent a few years in prison over that. But now they're all out and, and yeah, working together in the, the family business, mainly in, in, in petrol, in, in gas, and in cybersecurity.
0: And just one last question for you, did Did they ever, when, when you were interviewing them or hanging out with them, did you ever get to hear the, the imitation beeps and clicks that they were able to make over the phone?
1: Yeah, they they did that a little bit. It's pretty cool. It's The, the most amazing thing was when we sort of, we tested them to see what they could hear and you, they can hear, like you can, they they know exactly what number you're dialing. Let's say if you dial a number just from, you know, dialing, you know, the numbers have different tones, so they'll know exactly. They'll know exactly what you're dialing. Their sense of hearing really is, is like some kind of a superpower. You know, you, you, you walk around them. They, like one of the things that's uh, really cool when you, they're, they're very, very independent, the brothers. All right. So when you visit them, for example, it's very important for them to sort of host you, you know, so they'll make you coffee, for example, in their coffee machine and, and things like that. You don't get the sense that you're, you know, with somebody that is um, disabled in any way it might even be the opposite like there's some kind of an uncanny feeling that you're in the presence of somebody with kind some kind of a bit of a superpower what one, one other thing i wanted to mention regarding the what about their story spoke to you um and, and feel that it could be the basis of a, a good piece you know the fact that they were blind obviously you know podcasting the auditory medium and often when you go to you know often when you go to people and you want to do something like this really like an involved sort of audio piece or like why don't we just film this why don't we make a movie but we didn't obviously we didn't have to explain to the brothers the idea of putting a lot of effort into a product that will be only audio you know and sound design and building an entire world of audio they were just really like into that they really loved that idea
0: that's wonderful well thanks so much for for sharing their story with us it's it's an incredible incredible piece
1: yeah well thank you for the opportunity to share it it's um really happy happy to have this opportunity